What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Informed Secular Minds podcast. We are up to episode 18, cruising right along. We've been having so much fun with the show, and we really do appreciate everybody who tunes in every week. We also appreciate those of you who might be here for the first time. Thanks for checking us out. We hope that you find something uh, that, uh, that you enjoy. Even if you don't agree with us, hopefully it sparks some kind of a conversation. And in that vein, you are always welcome to give us a call and talk to us. If you, if you hear something that you want to agree with, if you have a, a question for Scott or myself, uh, if you just want to make your opinion known, uh, you give us a call at 646-564-9551. You can get the show on Blog Talk Radio slash Informed Podcast. Uh, all of our episodes are up there. You can stream them. Uh, they are also available in iTunes under Informed Secular Minds. You should follow us on Twitter and on Periscope. Uh, you can get us at the handle ismpodcast underscore. I am Corey. My handle is dopinephrine on those platforms. And with me, as always, is Scott. He is El Duderino, E-L-D-U-D-E-I-R-E-N-O on Twitter and on Periscope. We want to thank, as always, our support team. Cat uh, is Cat. Uh, that's uh, All Hallows Night on, uh, uh, on Twitter. She's been helping us with some of our notes. Uh, and we also want to thank Young Athlon 399 on Twitter and on Periscope. He's hosting our uh, our scope tonight. So if you are not able to get us on Blog Talk for any reason, you can always jump on Periscope and watch a live stream of it there. Um, ben, again, it, it seems like every episode I'm saying this. It's been another crazy week. Lots of stuff going on um, personally, uh, kind of ping-ponging around from from thing to thing. Um, but, uh, it's always a great feeling to get to sit down on Wednesday and do the show and that music cues, it's go time. It's a lot of fun. Scott, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing very well. I, I have that, uh, same thing too. It's been a crazy week and every week I think, well, it's gonna, next week will be better and I'll have more time and Wednesday rolls right around and here we are again, but the show must go on as they say. <laughs> the show must go on. Uh, and it is uh, it is always a lot of fun to uh, to connect this way and get to uh, get to talk to the audience. Um, we've got a really packed show. I know that's I know that's brand new. Usually we <laughs> usually we run out of stuff to talk about, right? Um, yeah. But uh, we've got we've got a hugely packed show. It's quite possible that we may end up uh, missing a few things along the way. But that is okay. I say it's better to have too much material than not enough, and we can always continue the discussion on Periscope and Twitter throughout the week. Um, we were talking about uh, uh, Truth Pursuit. We, we had two topics recently, both of which I thought were extraordinarily interesting. Um, Scott, two weeks ago, it was what, Age of the Earth? Yes, sir. Age of the Earth. Age of and the then, Earth. And then... Yeah, and then last week we went on to uh, thermodynamics. Man, um, when you pick these subjects, you really pick meaty, deep, academic, intellectually taxing ones, don't you? Well, I'm not. I, they turn out to be that, right? But uh, I, I'm just picking, um, trying to pick the ones that, and this kind of pertains mainly just to myself. So I don't know. Uh, I'm sure other atheists in America have run into these things, but these are. Uh, you know, evolution was a few weeks ago, and um, you know the the thermodynamics, of the age of the earth, things that we typically run into when we're when we're talking to the theist, the Christian, and um, especially the young earth creationist, where um, 
you know, we say as atheists all the time, we don't, we don't uh, begrudge anybody their beliefs. And, and if they want to have them, that's fine. And, and even if it's like young earth creationism, that's, that's fine. Go ahead. But when you start getting into the more uh, fundamental beliefs uh, in Christianity, that's where the legislation in, in that vein starts to roll around. And so we just find ourselves as atheists dealing with these topics a lot. And I know that, as you say, once you get into them, they're, they're meaty, intellectual, deep subjects. And, and I find myself not knowing much about them. Oh, I know that that's intuitively wrong. I know that what they said to me is wrong based on the basic science that I know, but I don't, you know, it's a new sort of a new thing I'd, I'd seen in the last five years of well, what about the second law of thermodynamics? And suddenly you're in a, you're in a position to say, well, I don't know anything about the laws of thermodynamics. And now your argument looks weak, everything after that. And so I figured they were just things that we needed to talk about and things we need to address. And, and like you were saying with the show, how, you know, we, we pack it full of things and, and oftentimes we're hitting that two hour mark and we found that we haven't talked about everything I've been finding with, uh, with these truth pursuit talks, especially the deeper, uh, topics that, oh, one week isn't enough time. And so I want to extend the last couple of weeks, the, uh, the age of the earth and the thermodynamics, just extend them out a little bit longer and, and have some more conversations about it as, as I said, it was a, a busy week for myself as well, so I didn't get a chance to do a scope on um, thermodynamics, and I'd like to do that and have some interaction and uh, just get some more information. So we're going to keep talking about thermodynamics, and we're also going to go back and, and throw in the age of the earth there, too. And if anybody wants to interact on Twitter this week, um, hopefully I get a scope in, and we can talk about both of those things and see how we can explain them to the layperson, how they can be explained to me so that I can understand them better. And hopefully I can explain them to other people so that they can understand them better. And I have an answer when the theists ask me these questions. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. I know that there was a, a few people I was, I was watching Twitter throughout the week and, and uh, there were some people that uh, talked about thermodynamics and, I'm I'm always very very excited when uh, the audience decides that they want to chime in when they direct us to resources that we haven't seen before uh, when they when they use what they know to kind of help to inform us. Um, that's kind of that's kind of the point, and that's kind of I think where the title of the show meets with Truth Pursuit in sort of a beautiful way. We always say that um, after I love you, the three most beautiful words in the English language are I don't know. <laughs> You know, it's a it's a it's a brilliant response, and it's one that no one should be ashamed to use. Um, I don't know is very very honest, and never should it be used as well. Then you're wrong. Uh, I don't know is is fear of saying I don't know is precisely when trouble arises in, in so many cases, and so. While you should be able to say thermodynamics, uh, well, I don't know about that. I, I don't have information on that. What we want is to never be satisfied with I don't know. We should be willing to employ I don't know when we need to. And when there are things that we um, as yet lack any kind of tool to determine an answer, uh, I don't know is the only rational placeholder. Uh, but humanity is 
a species of explorers. We are a species of thinkers. We're very curious. We're very inquisitive. And so when we find I don't know, that is precisely when we should begin to research. And when we can't find an answer or when an answer is not yet evident, what we should not do is begin to just plug whatever we want into, uh, into, that, into that gap. Um, I don't know is a great placeholder. It's the only placeholder. Um, I am completely satisfied with I don't know and I still don't know. Instead of I don't know, so let me borrow from conjecture and faith and exactly. extraordinary claims and make something up. Um, that, of course, would be <laughs> wholly unhealthy. How is that ever going to be a reliable way of determining truth? Yes. Um, that, just like you're saying, I don't know unless it's knowable. And then if you have the ability, go out there and educate yourself and, and, and then know. Yeah. Yeah. Curiosity is, uh, is brilliant. We were having a discussion just the other day about um, if you could, if you could, because I'm very interested in things that are true. I'm very interested in knowledge. Uh, but we were we were having sort of a thought experiment about if you could um, if you could in, in, with the snap of a finger know everything if you could have everything filled in and gain all knowledge would you do it and the temptation is real uh, the idea of being able to to gain that is somehow brilliant like you really kind of want that and yet it would be very hard to justify saying no and yet the loss of Curiosity, the loss of mystery would be very tragic, I think, um, to know everything and, and not have more things to wonder about, new, new places to investigate um, would, be, uh, would be a little like um, removing all the flavor from the meal of life. Kind of reminds me of, uh, and I'll probably butcher the quote, but uh, uh, when Alexander saw the breath of his domain, he wept where there were no more worlds to conquer. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's actually spot on. I agree. Reminds me of that as well, now that you say it. Well, Yeah, what would um, we do if we knew it all? Aside from the dangers of uh, perhaps knowing it all, it's just too much information, and that would kill you instantly. Yeah, yeah, I suppose part of the thought experiment would have to be your 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 mind could be You're able to point, you know. <laughs> wow. Um we we okay, so you may do a scope in the next few days. Um and so I really uh, again, I'll, I'll have the credentials once more. Uh if you've got any kind of thoughts, if you've got a great article, um, um somebody who hasn't already uh done so hit us at ISM podcast underscore with that, or uh, you can get at Scott directly at El Deuterino. Um, and we will, uh, we will continue this conversation as the. And I just want to say uh, anybody that follows me on Periscope knows that uh, I'm a little lazy when it comes to getting out there and scoping. I will try and do it. And uh, you know, hound me on Twitter, tell me, get in there and do it. And I, I'll be there. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a there's a lot of room for discussion and for education on these two subjects. Um, I never stop looking forward to the next thing I'm going to learn. It's just the best feeling in the world. <laughs> All right, well, proceeding with the show, I've got um, 
the more the more astute listeners have probably seen this little story from Alabama. Um, but it really it just smacks of all of the things that we talk about uh, as secularists, and I think it is worth noticing. Uh, I think it is worth discussing. Um, I've seen this reported on several sites, including NBC News, but the article that I'm going to read is from Salon. This is written by Amanda, um, I think it's Marcotti, Amanda Marcotti. Um, I hope I hope that I'm not butchering her name. Um, this article was actually published this morning, um, but I've been following this story for a couple of days since, uh, since it first appeared in the news. Um, it starts with, uh, with some comments about Donald Trump's election. I'm just going to start with the second paragraph. Uh, even in the current environment, it's startling to learn that the Alabama legislature is considering a bill to give a Birmingham-based church its own police force. The bill is Senate Bill 193. It would specifically authorize the Briarwood Presbyterian Church, which has more than 4,000 members, to hire its own police force that would be, quote, invested with all the powers of law enforcement officers in this state. The sole purpose of this proposed legislation is to provide a safe environment for the church, its members, students, and guests, the church said in a memo, in a memo sent to Salon after a request for comment. The memo also mentioned the Sandy Hook school shooting in Connecticut, claiming that the church needs qualified first responders in case such a thing would happen there. This particular church does not sit in some kind of lawless territory without access to the same law enforcement services available to other Alabama citizens. As NBC News has noted, the church is served by the sheriff's departments in both Jefferson and Shelby counties. This proposed legislation seems like a clear violation of church-state separation and a clear violation of the Constitution. Alex Luchinister, oh no, I'm, I'm again, I'm butchering this name. I'm just going to call him Alex. The Associate Director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State said in a phone call, government bodies must, be, must not delegate official power to religious entities. Uh, he cited a 1982 Supreme Court case, Larkin versus Grendel's Den, in which an eight-to-one majority found that states could not give churches the official authority to grant and deny liquor licenses. The ACLU of Alabama cited the same decision in the memo sent upon request to Salon. Indeed, allocating any quintessential government power to a religious institution plainly violates the Establishment Clause, the memo said, warning the state of Alabama that giving a church its own police force would not survive a legal challenge. Briarwood Presbyterian Church presented its request as a security measure, but... As noted, the church is already allowed by law to hire private security guards if desired. He said he worried that the deployment of police officers who are investigated with state uh, who, who are invested with state powers, but who ultimately answer to the religious institution that hired them, could lead to all sorts of legal problems. That's an understatement. Having police officers who work directly for our church, he argued, could lead them to feel that they are there to enforce the religious beliefs of that particular church. It's not an idle concern. Religious conservatives have become creative in recent years, seeking extra governmental power to impose obedience to their religious edicts on as many people as they can grab. The Christian right is pushing to allow businesses to discriminate against customers based on religious beliefs, noting various lawsuits from Christians who disapprove of religious rights for same-sex couples and are trying to carve out special rights to discriminate against couples who are protected by the law. Another example is the Hobby Lobby versus Burwell case. Uh, we don't really need to get into that. I think most people are familiar. That was a few years ago now. The website for Briarwood Presbyterian Church has an authoritarian theocratic bent. The pastor, Harry Reader, puts out a regular podcast 
where he frequently defends Donald Trump and pushes back against the concept of secularism. There is no sacred secular split in life, Reader argued yesterday on his podcast. Everything in life comes under the sovereign claims of Christ. That judgment, if not by divine edict, is inevitable by divinely ordained consequences for those who engage in high-handed rebellion against God's law. Reader wrote in a blog post responding to the Supreme Court decision that legalized marriage between same-sex couple, same couples across the country. Those nations who knowingly break God's law will inevitably be broken by God's law. Putting a legal police force under the authority of a, of a religious leader who apparently believes that the laws of the government should be shaped by his definition of God's law should raise a million red flags. What happens if leaders of that church or religious institution discover people they deem sinful have set foot on their campus, such as two young people of the same sex in a relationship or a parishioner who has had an abortion? Will these police be enforcing the laws of the land or the laws of the church? The concern here is about the legislature singling out this one church out, out for special treatment, which he argued violated the Establishment Clause of the Constitution. What if a mosque asked for their own police force, he asked rhetorically? Would the legislature treat a mosque the same way they treat an evangelical megachurch? That's extremely doubtful, which shows that the fact that Alabama legislators introduced a bill demonstrates that the state legislature might privilege this kind of conservative Christianity above other religions. Um, the ACLU has basically said that they can't imagine this would actually stand uh, if it were to pass. They don't think that it would be able to um, stand up to the scrutiny of a, of, a, of a higher court. But it is still an actual bill that is being considered um, and will presumably be voted on. Uh, if you are in Alabama, this should be of great concern. Um, I encourage you to call your state legislators and express to them why this is a very, very bad idea. Um, I don't want to be overly vitriolic uh, by talking about what a bad idea this is. Um, I have no reason to think that this church intends to use this power to go out and basically have a theocratic attitude, but there would be very little to stop them from doing that. This is the kind of attitude that spawned the Taliban. This is the kind of attitude that leads to uh, actual licensed enablers of the faith, people that would actually go out and enforce, perhaps at gunpoint, with legal protection, what they see as the law. In a secular society, this kind of thing cannot stand. So if you are in Alabama... Do yourself a favor and the rest of the country a favor and don't allow this to become a precedent. Call your legislators and tell them that they should be voting no on Senate Bill 193. Yeah, uh, when you said uh, do yourself a favor, I was like, do all of us a favor. And then you, you caught that. Yeah, do all of us a favor and do that. Um, Corey, every time you, you uh, put in our notes that you're going to read an article I make it a point to to not read that because I just want to hear it from you. And every time my jaw hits the floor, no way somebody's trying to do that. Uh, I can think <laughs> of a million reasons that this is bad uh, before we even get to the secular side of it. Just the training required. Um, they can hire private security if they want, but if they want that security to have guns, those guys have to be bonded. And um, 
it's it just seems to me, yeah, just an all around bad idea. You're going to have undertrained people enforcing one guy's interpretation of God's law or one, you know, um, parish's interpretation of God's law. And that's just, that's bad news all over. Yeah. I, 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 you know, they say that their intent is just to have uh, an armed guard there to, you know, if, 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 if some, terrible thing happened and somebody decided to attack this church. I think they also have uh, a, a fairly large K through 12 on the premises. Uh, they also, I believe have a, um, uh, a school for uh, uh, religious people um, where, where you can, you can go in and, you know, become a minister. You can, you can learn about uh, uh, the Bible. If some, if somebody were to go in and, and attack that, uh, the suggestion here is that the police officer who would be very likely a member of the church, somebody who would be armed in order to stop that person. That's the only thing that they say that they want to do. Okay. That may be a valid concern. I do not, I do not understand why we would go so far as to choose a member of the church, give them a gun and a badge and say, the church can give you the rights of a police officer the same way that the state can go out and defend the church. Um, Scott, I know that uh, police training and how um, insufficient it often is, um, is a, is a passionate topic for you. Um, the, the regular police officers in the United States are often underfunded and undertrained. Severely. And yeah, that was my, my initial concern was just taking these, if they're to take people from the church and then train them up to be a police force, they just, they just don't have the training. Uh, if, if they were going to do it at all, like, like you said, it wouldn't be bad for them to have maybe a legitimate concern to have a guard at the door if they, you know, feel that, that, that there could be a, a problem. That's, that's fine to have a guard at the door. And if they want that guard to be armed, I'm all for that as well. Um, I know that some department stores around here would hire uh, off-duty police officers to be their guards. So a cop would have two jobs and he'd be a cop and then he would go work as a guard at this department store. And the reason why the department store did this is because they would have to pay, as I was saying earlier, a security guard has to be bonded in order to carry a firearm on duty and be able to use it and there's all kinds of training and, and payment that has to happen for that. It's a extremely costly adventure for a, a company to do. So they, they hire these off duty police officers who are already bonded to carry firearms and then they save themselves some money. I'm sure the church could, could hire, as you said, the sheriff's department in that area is who patrols what, what County or what district they, you know, uh, they, uh, they fall under they can hire, I'm sure, one of those guys off duty to be a, a security guard or a couple rotating shifts if they wanted to. But their own police force and training up new people who I would assume are going to just get the minimal training and then immediately after that have their guns. And, and that's just not enough training. And for the purpose of this police force, as you say, what what is it beyond just protecting the church as a security guard? Um you know, uh, posts after that, is it going out and actively in the community looking for things that 
go against their interpretation of what God says is right and wrong. It, it's just a, a real sticky topic. That I, I, with the ACLU, think it'll probably never happen. But as you say, it's an actual bill that's being voted on. So you never right. know. So far in the chat raised a, a very important point that the police are, are meant to be uh, neutral. You know, they're, they are not hired by one group of citizens to protect them against another group of citizens. Um, if you have a police officer hired and trained by the church, probably a church member, and there is some kind of a, a conflict, whatever form that may take, uh, it, it's, not, it's not often just as cut and dry as some crazy attacker is coming in to try to harm people. That's pretty obvious. You need to stop the person who is trying to do harm to others. But there are going to be plenty of circumstances where things are not as gray. And this officer would have um, every possible conflict of interest if there was some, co- some sort of uh, legal conflict between the church and, uh, and another citizen. Well, it, it reminds me, of, it's a brilliant point that she brings up because they're supposed to be neutral. And, and this is exactly the problem that uh, the, the far right, the religious right, that wants to, um, you know, stop gay marriage and, and these other things, they have a real, I don't know if it's a misunderstanding or just a hatred of the idea of separation, church of state, church and state, this idea that their religion isn't special compared to the, all the other religions. And so they want that special, you know, thing for their religion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The equality and church and state separation for all those other crazy religions, but not mine, not Christianity, which they firmly believe the United States was founded on for whatever reason. Uh, it just, it's just going, I think, a little step further, and they're saying, yeah, there are the sheriff's department, and sure, I'm sure the deputies, some of them go to the church or are religious themselves, but in their line of duty, they are to be neutral, and I think that neutrality isn't good enough for the church. They want that skew, that special privilege, that ours is important and deserves more protection on top of everything else. Yeah, we see that kind of attitude again and again, um, where you know people seem seem capable of staying inside the confines of the law, and yet there is this notion that the ultimate authority is God, and so regardless of what the laws of men say. Um, religious freedom bleeding into the way that we act legislatively uh, is a chronic issue. Um, there's, there's, there's an often perpetuated idea that it doesn't matter what the laws of man say because the laws of man are instantly trumped by the laws of God. And that's, that's not okay. We are, we, are, we are living in a country with people of many different kinds of faiths. You, you do not get to just take your faith and declare it better, more valid, more important than everybody else's or somebody's lack of faith and decide that you've got special license uh, to do or encourage or legislate based on the stuff that's in your book instead of what's based on the public good, based on the law of the land and so forth. Who is the, um, I forget her name, the lady that uh, refused to provide marriage licenses for same-sex couples? 
Right. Um, Kim. Yeah. Oh shoot. Now I've, now I've forgotten. It was, it was like 18 months ago and just long enough for right. us to get, I'm sure somebody in the chat will mention it in just a moment. And, and, um, and you know, she has this job where she hands out marriage licenses as long as the people qualify under state laws to get married. Then she sees that they've filled out all the proper paperwork and met those requirements. Then she stamps the thing and gives them the license. And she was refusing to give same-sex couples licenses just on her religious, you know, values or, or, or principles. And I believe it was Scott Clifton from Theoretical Bullshit, but it could have been someone else, uh, a YouTube atheist, said it, it would have been the same. It's the same thing as if like uh, a Muslim had that job, a Muslim American had that job, and then or had a job where they were giving driver's licenses. And they wouldn't give driver's license to females because their religion says that they shouldn't have that that right. It, it it's this again the special pleading to the Christian side and not understanding that the separation is there to not only um, protect the other you know the the homosexuals or or the the women who want to drive or or what what have you but are also there to protect your religious rights you can practice right. your religion in your home you can be religious in this country even though this country isn't founded on one particular religion religion and isn't that wonderful that you can the great thing about secularism is that right the great thing about secularism is that god's law doesn't trump everything else the, 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 the point here is that in order to protect everyone, the law is not based on any in particular person's God. God's law is, is for you. It has nothing to do with others. It is not to be imposed on your neighbors or fellow citizens. You can decide that those laws apply to you. You can decide that you want to, to follow the stuff from the Bible. That's up to you. But you don't get to impose it on others because if you do, then it allows other people to impose things on you. Secularism protects Christians exactly. just as much as everyone else. It keeps from Sharia law being declared over Christians. I don't think that they would want that. I don't want that for them. Uh, or, or if a Hindu was the leader of the Department of Agriculture and then they decided that their religious view were to come into that job. Everybody eating beef would be pretty upset about the next things coming down the line. Right. Right. Um, uh, uh, Kat informed me that the uh, that the name of that woman was Kim Davis. That we couldn't remember a moment ago. Kim Davis. Davis, Kim Davis. or Davies? I wonder. I, I I I'm I'm just remembering it. I can't flashback. It's not that I need to have. Um, we have something kind of exciting that I'm very much hoping will be featured in next week's episode. We are working on a new segment for the show. Uh, we had intended to start it tonight and we just did not have time to, to rehearse um, to, to get everything in order, but it is coming along. Um, I don't want to say too much else. I just want to encourage everybody to uh, tune in um, for, 
for a new it's it's almost like a game kind of um and uh, we're hoping that people will uh will call in and engage uh, on that uh so tune in on next Wednesday and you'll be able to hopefully if all things go well hear the oh, first man. segment uh of our of our new of our new thing it's going to be a lot of fun yeah i am so looking forward to it um just briefly um, and we don't need to get into it too much because some some really good news followed the really scary news. Um, I don't know you guys when you guys did the uh, uh, the prayer episode um, last month. Yes, I remember you guys talking about uh, you and you and Maris Young Afon three nine nine about faith healing. Um, and there was a bill. Um, SB 1182 in Idaho that was meant to change the laws in order to protect parents um, who employ faith healing to the detriment of their children. Correct. Um, this, this was, this was, <laughs> it caused a huge amount of outcry, which I was pleased to see uh, from every direction. It wasn't just uh, secularists who were like, that's a bad idea. Um, uh, some Christians stood up against it. Uh, people of other faiths stood up against it, uh, and plenty of uh, non-religious and secular people stood up against it as well. Um, it made it through their um, Senate committee and headed to, I think, the House. Um, but yesterday, no, it went it went out of the committee into the full Senate. Yesterday, that bill died. Um, oh. It would have only amended Idaho civil laws to make it easier for judges to get involved in faith healing cases. Um, it was pitched as a compromise, but criticism among lawmakers uh, was incredibly strong. They voted 24 to 11 to kill it yesterday. So there's a victory. Right on. I saw yeah, that you had that in there. I was like, what is he want to talk about that for? <laughs> I thought we covered yeah, it. It's a bad idea, right? Was it not a bad idea? Right. Are you seeing that? Um, yeah, I was. Yeah. I was following that throughout the week because a lot of people, or, or at the beginning of the week, because a lot of people were uh, were discussing it on various platforms, um, and uh, and I thought that we would we would at least mention that it had passed out of the committee. But well, uh, now, hopefully, that same thing happens for what you just read about in Alabama. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, the Kelly Alabama thing is seen as. Make them a thing of the past. Right, right. Yeah, we will see. But good on you, Idaho. Well done. Um, we're certainly glad to see that happen. Um, faith healing doesn't work, guys. It uh, just doesn't work. So don't use it and uh, don't hide behind your religious freedom um, if, if you, through negligence, allow your kid to get sick or die because you'd rather have Jesus heal him than a doctor. That's gross. Don't do it. It's, okay. Yeah. We're uh, about 35 minutes in, and I think we are ready to get to the meat of the show. Uh, the topic tonight, the episode title is, That's Not in the Bible, But This Is. <laughs> and the first thing that we want to do is we want to talk about some of the stuff that people routinely uh, say is, is from the Bible or, or quote from the Bible that just isn't in there at all. Um, 
CNN recently did an article on precisely this, um, and I've got it in front of me, but I don't want to just read it because I think that being that CNN is a pretty big outlet and given that this has been out for weeks now, um, I, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm hoping that people have already read this if they had any kind of passing interest and I don't want to, I don't want to read it twice. Um, but it does talk about, it's kind of based on this premise um, about uh, uh, coach Mike Ditka, who um, said when he was fired, he said, uh, scripture tells you that all things shall pass. This too shall pass. That's that's not that's not in the Bible. It's um it's something that's very very commonly uh, claimed to be from the Bible. People kind of like how it makes them feel. I guess they like the 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 implied wisdom of it or something, but that is not in fact uh, biblical. Um, people may get verses wrong, but they also mangle plenty of well known biblical stories as well. Um, a major one is, of course, Jonah and the fish. Um, another is Satan being the serpent in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't until 500 years after the Garden of Eden story was written that anybody implied that the serpent was actually Satan. It doesn't say that in the scripture. Um, it just talks about a serpent. And sort of retroactively, people decided that wouldn't it be wouldn't it be convenient if the serpent was um was satan but that's not uh, that's not exactly biblical um i'll read this last bit it's entitled where do these phantom passages come from this is interesting it's easy to blame the spread of phantom biblical passages on pervasive biblical illiteracy but the causes are varied and go back centuries some of the guilty parties are anonymous lost to history they are artists and storytellers who over the years embellished biblical stories and passages with their own twists. If, say, you were an anonymous artist painting the Garden of Eden during the Renaissance, why not portray the serpent as the devil to give some punch to your creation? And if you're a preacher telling a story about Jonah, doesn't it just sound better to say that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, not a great fish? Others blame the spread of phantom Bible passages on King James, or more specifically the declining popularity of the King James translation of the Bible. That translation, which, which marks 400 years of existence this year, had a near monopoly on the Bible market as recently as 50 years ago. Um, if you quoted the Bible and got it wrong, then people were more likely to notice because there was only one text. But today, so many different translations are used that almost no one can tell for sure if something supposedly from the Bible is being quoted accurately or not. Others blame the spread of phantom biblical verses on Martin Luther, the German monk who ignited the Protestant Reformation, the massive protest against the excesses of the Roman Catholic Church that led to the formation of Protestant church denominations. It is a great Protestant tradition for anyone, milkmaid, cobbler, or innkeeper, to be able to pick up the Bible and read it for yourself. No need for a highly trained scholar or cleric to walk a layperson through the text, says Craig Hazan, director of the Christian Apologetics Program at Biola University in Southern California. But often the milkmaid, the cobbler, and the NFL coach start creating biblical passages without the guidance of biblical experts, he says. You can see this manifest today in living room Bible studies across North America where lovely Christian people with no training whatsoever drink decaf, eat brownies, and ask one another, what does this text mean to you? Not only do they get the interpretation wrong, but very often end up quoting verses that really are not there. Um, that... That that makes that makes a certain amount of sense. I, I also I also think that um, 
you know, sometimes these these ideas, these sometimes they're, they're just misinterpretations. Sometimes they're just recited wrong. Um, but they can they can allow for an emphasis that isn't actually present in the Bible, and it's it's often sort of a, a cultural or societal thing, right? Where um, you have a, a societal norm or a political idea, and it feels right and it feels good, and so something in the Bible or something that sounds Bible-ish um, is quoted to defend one's position, as if to say, "Well, you know, this is this is well, like the Bible says," and you say something in order to make your point have the extra weight of this uh, supreme authority. Um, and I think that those things can easily enter. Uh, the zeitgeist and just become colloquialisms that that eventually uh, for for the layman's for somebody who isn't a scholar or hasn't hasn't read the Bible several times to make sure that they really know their stuff uh, is just kind of a, a nice thing to say and might as well attribute it to the Bible. Why not? Well, it, it's a it's a very common thing to do in, in a especially in a, like a not a formal debate but a debate a debate with someone that you're while you're talking to them you 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 know that you have a point to make, you know you have some information that you've heard before, you've read before, that you just believe for whatever reason, and at the moment you can't think of where it came from. So you may even just embellish of, you know, the the source of that that this information that you want to put out there to to give it some backbone, to give it some credit. And you know, I'm guilty of this myself when I and plenty of times in, in conversation. But what's a better authority than the Bible behind it to say no, it's absolutely, you know, in the greatest authority of all, it says this. So it seems like a good thing to do to strengthen your argument. Right. So uh, one of those things is um, God helps those who help themselves. Uh, the earliest credit for that excuse me, is um, a saying actually from, and what is this, Aesop's? Aesop, like Aesop's fables, yeah. Yeah, uh, Hercules and the Wagner. A man's wagon got stuck in a muddy road, and he prayed for Hercules to help. Hercules appeared and said, get up and put your shoulder to the wheel. The moral given was, the gods help them that help themselves. Aesop was a Greek writer who lived from 620 to 564 BC, but obviously did not contribute to the Bible. There's um, another from Asecules. Yeah, is that, is that correct? I don't know. I, how to I, say that. I, I, you know, you're, it's it's as good as I, you know. We we come on here and we pretend to be <laughs> smart. Right. But we don't know how to read these names. I can't read this guy's name. Uh, the Persians from the play The Persians. Whenever a man makes haste, God too hastens with him. Um. And another guy also wrote, no good air comes of leisure purposeless, and heaven never helps the men who will not act. Uh, Euripides wrote, try first thyself, and after call in God. And in another phantom scripture that appears nowhere in the Bible, but many people think it does, it's actually attributed to Benjamin Franklin, uh, one of the nation's founding fathers. The passage is popular in part because it is a reflection of the cherished American values, individual liberty and self-reliance, says Sidney White Crawford, a religious studies scholar at the University of Nebraska. I wonder if it's from the Poor Richard's Almanac. 
it's it's oh well, and this and this kind of goes to the point you know it's um um something that that Benjamin Franklin kind of said uh, in the vein of of you know some some other people a lot of ideas that are that are um you know little little bits of wisdom they they can be traced back to any number of of early sources Benjamin Franklin said something along the lines of God helps those who help themselves um and so it ends up becoming a quote it gets attributed to the Bible probably because it's talking about God it, I mean it's like an easy mistake. Um, sure, but you know, and I and I remember reading somewhere that, um, you know, the Bible kind of suggests the opposite. Um, it it kind of suggests that you know, actually there are, there are things that that only God can do. Um, that you should call on the Lord first, uh, put your cares in Him. Um, so it's 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 you know it's an interesting little. I, I remember being told it many times when I was a kid. I I, I know that I, I've heard that a thousand times in basic conversation where uh, where people say that. But it, it's very American. It's very uh, it's kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but with a atheistic right. air to it. You know. Um, this was mentioned in the uh, in the chat, I think, by Arabin. Uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. No, that's one I grew up hearing. Oh yeah, it's it's. I mean, I, you hear it all the time. It, it's just one of those sayings. It's 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 everywhere. Um, this one is credited to a Babylonian and Hebrew proverb. Um, Despite the strict rules given to the Israelites about uncleanliness as a metaphor for sinfulness and ceremonial washing required by the priests, which we see in Exodus and Leviticus, this phrase is not in the Bible. It originated as an ancient Greek, Babylonian, and Hebrew proverb but became very popular during the Victorian era after being revived by Sir Francis Bacon and John Wesley. Um, it's also uh, got a little to do with the Talmud, an old proverb there. Again, we already mentioned that it's a Hebrew proverb, uh, it, it, often mistakenly attributed to Ben Franklin. The last one actually was Ben Franklin. This one isn't. Um, actually comes from Phineas Ben-Yar, whose writing appears in the Talmud this way. The doctrines of religion are resolved into carefulness, carefulness into vigorousness, vigorousness into abstemoniousness, into cleanliness, cleanliness into godliness, i.e. cleanliness is literally next to godliness when you read that. Oh, that uh, <laughs> like, like literally on the page. Just, that word other. is next to that word. <laughs> Not next to the other word. Um, or how about this one? Hate the sin, love the sinner. Uh, not in the Bible. Credits from Mahatma Gandhi. Um, although this is a biblical sounding admonition, uh, it is not directly from the Bible. It's actually a loose quote of something Gandhi wrote in 1929. Hate the sin and not the sinner. Uh, also, credits for Augustine. Augustine expressed a similar thought back in AD 424. With love for mankind and hatred of sins. Um, and from the Bible, a loose translation of Jude 1, uh, 22 to 23, the biblical principle backing this up is found in Jude. We are to hate sin, even our own, and we are to show love to other people. Uh, so multiple possible interpretations of the other texts in the Bible. And there's you know, far too many to list. That are you know they're just kind of you're you're getting the gist of it, but the, you're you're putting putting it in the wrong order. This one I actually kind of like the sentiment of. 
Um, I, I don't, I don't believe in sin. I don't believe that it's a thing. Um, I think that it's kind of uh, a word that more and more is getting diluted and used for all kinds of other stuff. Um, sinning against other people that kind of defies the original definition of sin. Um, really terrible crimes are, are seen as, as sins or, or as also being sins. I, I don't think that sin is a thing, but I kind of, I kind of appreciate the sentiment um, you know, don't, don't, don't hate a person. Um, it, it reminds me of, of something that, that we would say. Um, I, 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 can, I can completely respect you as a person. It's your beliefs that I have an issue with. Right. Um, I don't want to attack Christians, but I've got a lot of critiques of Christianity. Um, believe as you will, and when I, when I, when I criticize your, your faith um, or, your, or your ethics – I'm criticizing those ideas. I'm not trying to criticize you as an individual. So that's kind of a kind of a nice sentiment, regardless of where it comes from, um, but not explicitly found in the Bible. Um, I, I really enjoy this one because it's a very key distinction. I remember I remember this kind of occurring to me once upon a time uh, when I was reading the Bible. Money is the root of all evil. Um, another very common one. Money is the root of all evil. All, all evil. Now this does kind of have a biblical root uh, in Timothy. 610, it says, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. You see the difference there? For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Money is, is neutral. Money doesn't have a will. It cannot be the root of evil. It is, of course, what people do with money or their lust for money that can cause problems. And that, of course, is true. Um, you know, greed can cause people to, to disregard uh, the value of other individuals. It can, it can, greed is, greed is, I mean, a constant problem. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of what's going on here. Um, but to say that money is the root of all evil misses the point. Loving money is a problem. The Bible doesn't say that, that you should be um, uh, impoverished. It does say uh, uh, what does Jesus say? Something about um, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. But that's not necessarily admonishing money itself. It doesn't seem like Christianity, other than than certain monks who who take you know vows of poverty, themselves have a problem with money or that money itself is evil. For them, it's about removing the distraction. They want to focus on their faith and on preaching and on being a scholar, and so they, they don't see the point in, in also having to worry about a checkbook and material goods and things like that. Um, money is not the root of evil. Loving money is the root for all sorts of evil, says the Bible. And this is uh, <clears throat> to Ditka's uh, passage this too shall pass um, credited to Persian poetry this proverb has its root in the works of Persian Sufi poets Attar and Nishapur records one fable of a powerful king who asks a symboled wise man to create a ring that will make him happy when he is sad and vice versa after, after debating the sages the sages hand him a simple ring with the words this too will pass etched on it which has the desired effect. That's great. That's a great <laughs> That is story. great. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, um, oh, no, please go ahead. It's, it's not something that is, uh, 
is is biblical, and it's certainly in in line with the Bible. Couldn't be taken as an absolute because there are plenty of things that don't pass according to Christianity, and God doesn't pass. Um, I, I don't think that the new earth is meant to pass. Uh, you know, there there are lots of ancient laws that are supposed to remain in effect forever um, because they are they are believed to be God's laws. Um, it's interesting that that's so often used. It's very comforting though. It's uh, it's kind of a kind of a nice little 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 phrase. It is. Um, it's interesting you're saying that the, in the Christianity doesn't really work because a lot of things don't pass. Um, your your sins only pass, I guess, if you if you ask for forgiveness. If you don't, those those last forever, and then your punishment lasts forever. That's not going to pass. Or even the uh, reward of heaven isn't going to pass. That's eternal. Um, other credits of it is an old English poem. It's actually a misinterpretation of a line from the Lament of Dor. Uh, Dor has been replaced as his lord's poet and calls to mind several other Germanic mythology figures who went through troubled times. Each refrain ends with, that passed away, so may this. Several verses in the Bible remind us that our lives and indeed heaven and earth will pass away, uh, Matthew 24, 35. But while we cannot, com- we cannot find comfort, we can't find comfort in knowing that our earthly sorrows are temporary, we're still called to rejoice in our trials, knowing that they will lead to endurance and sanctification. James 1, 2 through 4. The, um, the next one here is the lion shall lay down with the lamb, which is kind of prophetic. Um, the lion shall lay down with the lamb. This one is, is a little, is a little closer to being accurate. Um, Although Jesus is both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God, this phrase does not appear in the Bible. Isaiah 11.6 says, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Uh, similarly, Isaiah 65.25 reads, The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The sentiment reads true. However, hunter and prey will be reconciled and live in peace in the eternal kingdom. Um, that's the, that's the, the Christian view of that one. Um, it's often boiled down to the lion shall lay down on the lamb. That's just not what the Bible uh, actually says. Yeah, it's just not the wording. Uh, when I saw that, that you put that in there earlier, uh, it was interesting to me because that's, that's sort of the view that a lot of the uh, biblical uh, literists take. The um, younger creationist, Ken Ham, for example, takes a view that, uh, prior to original sin, there was no death, and that all um, animals were vegetarians, and that the sharp teeth of predators that we see, wolves and lions and everything, was to chew uh, hard vegetation, and that they weren't predators. So this seems to be saying that in the eternal kingdom in heaven, it'll go back to that perfect place that it already was. That you know, that damn, that damn fucking woman messed it up. Yeah, and it was perfect. Was- it was so good, and then Eve had to come along, man. Say nothing of Lilith messing it up first. <laughs> That's not in the Bible either. Um, God works in mysterious ways is another one that we've all heard just growing up with. Um, a paraphrase of a 19th century hymn by the English poet William uh, Cowper. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm, deep in unfathomable minds over never-falling skill. 
He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Year fearful saints, fresh courage take. Judge not the Lord be feeble since, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning province, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The mud, the bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. The clouds, yea, so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. And scan his work in vain, God his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. So it's like the first line of that that poem. Yeah, um, and, and I've heard uh, apologists uh, employ the sentiment uh, to say, you know, God is, is so incredible that we can't understand uh, the things that he does. And, and when it's really just kind of a stopgap measure. Whenever there's, there's something where his motivation is just not present, even though there are plenty of times in the Bible where God makes his his motivation is very plain um, when he doesn't people, well, we, we can't know. And, and his plan is, is larger than what we can understand. And therefore God works in mysterious ways. I mean, this is from, this is from like 200 years ago. Uh, this is, this is super extra biblical. Um, God in the old Testament, especially goes to great lengths to explain precisely why he's doing stuff. Um, it just kind of ends up, ends up working. You can see why it would be a useful tool for an apologist who's trying to explain why God would do horrific stuff, why God would do things uh, in the Bible that is just is just petty and weird and gross. Um, well, he works in You don't know what his actual plan is. He must have a plan because otherwise there's no justifying this kind of ridiculous behavior. It's just not biblical. Um, one that I've always kind of found annoying. Um, God will not give you more than you can handle. I have been told this in all sorts of moments of despair. Um, bad things happen. Um, I remember being a kid and my dad saying it to me. You know, God says that he won't give us more than, more than you can handle. Okay, well, first off, it's completely untrue. Um, in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 10.13, refers to dealing with temptation, not burdens. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will... He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. So it's not even talking about the kinds of things that we em employ the phrase for. You know, we talk about, well, man, I'm so stressed right now, and I don't know what I'm going to do, and this problem and that problem, or I, I can't handle the grief of having lost somebody. Well, God won't give me one that you can handle. Okay, they're talking about temptation. They're saying that no matter how tempted you become to do something sinful, God will provide you with a way to endure temptation. This is not the same thing as God has some kind of masterful interventionist plan, and whatever he puts in your path is a necessary obstacle. No, there are plenty of people who have ended up facing way more than they could handle. It can totally happen. People who well, are tortured to death, for example. And even in the in the way that it's meant, um, obviously there have been plenty of uh, faithful, uh, you know, faithfully religious people who have been tempted to sin beyond what they could handle and have wound up on the cover of the news because they had a wide stance in an airport bathroom. Well, that's because they weren't faithful enough, Scott. I I forget. I forget all I mean, things that you have to do to be pious enough to I, – I, if, you're, if you're a true Christian, 
if you're a true Christian, then he won't give you so much that you can't handle. You all, those obviously were true Christians, so my bad. Obviously, you were provided with a way out so that you could endure it, and you just chose to go against that because you're a filthy sinner. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, wow. Okay, so as we mentioned, uh, uh, the other one here talks about um, uh, Satan being in the Garden of Eden. Um, it says, uh, according to um, this is Kevin Dunn, chair of the Department of Religion at Tufts University, in Massachusetts. He says Genesis mentions nothing but a serpent. Not only does the text not mention Satan, the very idea of Satan as a devilish tempter postdates the composition of the Garden of Eden story by at least 500 years. Um, it 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 fits so nice and it's so convenient, um, but there are a lot of strange stories that we're going to get to in the Bible where various characters show up that just doesn't really fit with the, with the outside view of like what Christianity is, where it all seems sort of organized. Um, it isn't when you scratch beneath the surface and uh, it seems very retroactive that, that the fallen angel Lucifer renamed Satan was actually that, that serpent uh, in the garden. Um, there, there are other controversies surrounding that as well. Um, I, I think I shouldn't even say this because I can't remember. I believe I've even read um, uh, someone suggest that canon-wise, the the event, and there's probably no way to actually determine this, the event of Lucifer falling from heaven happened after the Garden of Eden anyway. Um, You know, that that, that he was upset about, about, some people say that, that Lucifer got annoyed about the creation of man. Um, and so that's why everything else happened, which makes it a little a little difficult to place him in the Garden of Eden while he's still in God's good graces. Um, no, I don't have my uh, notes from last week, but I was talking about that uh, that torturer in hell. His name started with an N, but he had uh, I can't think of it because he had like three or four different names. It, right. it came from a lot of different mythology, and it is you know, question whether or not he was Satan himself, but he did the torturing in hell and he was doing it, uh, you know, for God. It was like hell was a place that God had made for these people to be tortured. And he was totally in charge of it and, you know, delegated the, the actual torturing to this, this, uh, this demon, this, whatever he, he was, who, who, whose uh, second job remember was, uh, caretaker angel of guardian angel to to uh infants up to toddlers yeah yeah (laughs) which is so weirdly just grotesque he's in charge of of figuring out uh ways to torture souls but he's also the guardian of infants like but he only tortures souls because god wants him to be those are the bad souls it it Mm -hmm. seems to me that there's this uh I was thinking about this last night, and this is a little off the subject, but uh, grant me a rant, please. I was thinking about the idea of uh, the, the different ways Lucifer or Satan has been portrayed in um, movies and television shows and things. And There are some over-the-top Satans, and there are some yelling Satans, and there are some subtle Satans, and all of them have their, their good points and their bad points, you know. Um, but I was thinking, but they're all evil. You know, they're all uh, just they just there. There's a bit of gross involved in it, you know, worms and maggots and things coming out of mouths. You often see see 
pain and torture and all this stuff. And they, and, and the Satan character enjoys it and enjoys doing it. And even if it was happening to him and his demons, they, they're just made of torn flesh and they enjoy it. But I was thinking that, you know, perhaps the Satan, you know, the fallen angel Lucifer wouldn't be like that. Maybe he, you know, he, he just didn't like the way God was running things, but he liked heaven. Uh, maybe that would just be as horrible to him as well. And that's why this character who was torturing the evil people was doing it for God. He doesn't like that. They're, they're not that evil, stinky, nasty monster. They're someone like God who, who would prefer heaven and, and the perfection of things. And they just have to do this torturing for the people who are evil and gross. But that's not in the Bible either. I was just thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, our, our, our good friend Chuck uh, mentioned to me before the show that if you want to understand hell, the way that it is explained uh, and described and presented aesthetically in, in Christianity, um, you really can't look at the Bible. You have to go to Dante's Inferno. Dante's um, Inferno. Yeah, exactly. Until then, we don't really have a very good description um, of hell. It, it's referenced here and there. Um, Jesus may or may not have been referring to a burn pit for trash when he said that's where your soul will go, where many people took that to mean like deep under the earth into a pit of fire. He might have just meant it'll be like trash. It'll, it'll just burn away. There, it'll be like waste, where refuse. refuse. Um, it's not until we end up with... Um, with with Dante's over the top torture porn of of uh, of of his writings that that people start to talk about you know a, a very explicit you know there's there's seven levels and each one has actual people and this is how they're being punished and and all of this kind of grotesque imagery um, uh, same with uh, uh, the devil with horns and a pitchfork like there there are a lot of caricatures that we we use like uh, just in just in like cartoons or, or comics, you know, uh, the way that we might do it in a sketch. Um, angels having wings is not in the Bible. The devil having horns and a pitchfork is not in the Bible. Um, this stuff just kind of yeah, gets that, added. that uh, horns and a pitchfork and the, the pointed tail um, that that comes from a, you know a separate writing. I can't remember what it is. And I was going to ask you about that if you knew because I, I was thinking that that might have been Dante's, but I don't remember how. It, or how or if the, the devil was portrayed in, in Dante's Inferno. I should have I should have looked that up. Um, where when when exactly the the character of the devil gained horns and a pitchfork? He also sometimes a, has a, 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 a picture. A, 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 I'm sorry. There's a picture of the devil with. I I think he's got a pitchfork, but he's got the horns. And I'm pretty sure the tail um, in um, the. The Codex uh, Giga, the the large, you know that 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 um, three foot tall sure. Bible that this yeah. dude supposedly wrote in one night. Yeah, the Devil's Bible. Yes, there's a there's a picture of the devil, and I don't know what year that's from. I don't know if that's the first um, interpretation of Satan looking that way, but that's just one person's, or at least one sex bible that has that uh that drawing in it i found this one really interesting um there's no account of a battle at armageddon they gather for battle in the bible but they never say that anything happens 
Like everybody, everybody gets ready to go to war, but there isn't actually a battle that is specifically mentioned. Now, isn't that um, Armageddon? Isn't that supposed to be uh, a place, um, Megiddo? Yeah, there's an actual place called Armageddon. Um, uh, and and I should say, I, I, I completely blew right past this. The the list that we're using now, um, where where we're not we're not sourcing everything. We're just saying things that aren't in the Bible. We wanted to make sure that we that we gave as much credit as possible um, uh, to the 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 experts of Christianity. So we got this from uh, ChristianPost.com. This is like from a, a Christian. Um, website and they compiled uh, this list. I've only added a few things here and there that um, that they missed, but but this is this is like 99% uh, straight from uh, ChristianPost.com. Um, I think that's all I was trying to say. What what was the what was the last point that you just made? There was another point. Oh, I was just wondering if the uh, if the the Devil's Bible was the maybe the one of the first appearances of. The Bible, uh, the devil described as we know him, with the horns and, and the tail and everything. I'm I'm, I'm just looking right now. Um, also, the Bible doesn't mention any female angels at all. And um, in both biblical languages, spiritual masculinity comes out of heaven and femininity comes out of earth. So uh, Rausch Mikolskene uh, is wait Shekina is feminine. Shekina. Uh-huh. Yeah, form the connection between the two, kind of like Christmas song. Let earth receive her king. Let heaven and nature sing. Female angels are found mostly in gift shops on earth, and of course with wings. Gabriel is literally in Hebrew God's intimidator. I love that. Which which I we we asked this uh, a few weeks ago. Um, why is it that every time Gabriel shows up? The first thing out of his mouth is "Don't be afraid." Like he has to, he has to preempt whatever he's about to say with "Don't be afraid." And we were thinking, well, if a big dude with giant wings showed up, that might yeah. be in the moment startling. So you might need to say that, but it doesn't say that he has wings. Um, and a lot of the actually, angels have have male names, but and I and this I'm just pulling out of. The zeitgeist. Um, so it might not be in the Bible as well. Uh, aren't they supposed to be sort of like gender neutral or like without genitalia? Or, or is that in the Bible or, is, or am I just making I'm that up? I'm not aware of that being in the Bible. That's how uh, Alan Rickman portrayed in Dogma. Right. Uh, didn't, have, didn't have any. Dogma. Well, then I'm, not... I'm convinced that's how it is. I'll take Kevin Smith's word over the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, well, I mean, then we have the uh, the issue of the Nephilim, which apparently are the offspring of angels and man. Um, so they must be able to procreate in some fashion. Oh, OK. But uh, anyway, uh, I, 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 I like the idea that Gabriel, which I've always thought is such a pretty name, Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel. You know, it's, it's very it's kind of pretty. It's, a, it's angelic. It really is probably because of the angel. it's it's. It's very um, like I think of like harps and, and white light and Gabriel is such a pretty name. God's intimidator. Well, that puts a little bit of a different light on things. Um, yeah. There is no singular apocalyptic antichrist figure. When John used that in Revelation, it was plural. Um, it doesn't mention any singular antichrist as the beast of Revelation. 
Um, um, maybe somebody in the uh, in the chat can answer this for me. I know I've read a version of the Bible um, a few years ago that that talks about the the single Antichrist figure and the number six 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 is supposed to refer to um, uh, Caesar Nero, Ooh. and there was a reason for it. And um, yeah, yeah, I. It was in a version of the Bible. I can't remember for the life of me which version. And this is something that was meant that you mentioned earlier was, you know, when there was one standard version of the Bible, then it was easy to go, that's not in there or that is. But now with so many different translations, it's hard to keep track. But this is definitely an older version that I read that um, that when the revelations is speaking of the number of the beast and the Antichrist, it's specifically speaking of Caesar Nero. And uh, I wanted to know if anybody out there could mention in the chat or on Periscope if they're listening, uh, if they know anything about that. Yeah, I'd be very interested in finding that out as well. I, I, this is this is the neat thing about when you're when you're researching about the um, the Bible is you start off thinking, oh, wouldn't this be a great idea uh, to sit down and explain all of this? And there is so much going on. There are so many interpretations throughout so much of human history that. Ultimately, you can never be prepared enough. You always end up just learning more stuff. It's, it reminds me of when we did Scientology. Every little thing that you uncover ends up being a bunny trail. Right. Like there's no, you know, we, we, put, we put a bunch of work into this. And even as we're doing it, I keep thinking, oh, I got to look up 666. I got to look up where, the, where the, the devil and horns thing comes from. It's, um, right. it, it's, a, it's a deep, deep, deep story uh, with a lot of stuff going on. Um, Long-time listeners of the show will remember when we talked about uh, Jesus being the reason for the winter season. There's, there's nowhere in the Bible does it talk about celebrating Christmas or December 25th being that day. Um, it, it's, it's just symbolic, and obviously uh, they, they chose December 25th for several reasons, not the least of which is uh, it coincided with the end of the uh, winter solstice, which was very convenient given the Saturnalia uh, celebrations at the time. Uh, it does not say when Jesus was born, but it was probably at least in the spring, given given the context of some of the passages about uh, shepherds being in the fields. Um, I, I, I like this. There's there's no prohibition in the Bible against certain kinds of, of swearing. Um, it says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. But it doesn't say anything about just foul language. It doesn't say you shouldn't use hell or shit or fuck or any of those words. It, 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 it does not say that at all. Um, the Old Testament forbids taking the name in vain. There is no equivalent prohibition of the, of the expletive use of Jesus's name or Christ for that matter. Um, no encouragement to celebrate Advent or Lent. Um, here's a good one. The English version of the Bible doesn't capitalize the word God. I got this from um, from uh, the, uh, the the publisher of the New International Version. It said some Bibles do not capitalize certain pronouns because their translators felt that doing so was not an accurate translation of the original language. The decision to capitalize or not capitalize pronouns is a question of translation and is not a statement of disrespect. For example, here's a note from uh, a consultant who worked on the NIV version of the Bible. He says the NIV and some other contemporary translations do not capitalize these pronouns for a very good reason. They are not capitalized in the original. The Greek does not use uppercase to employ 
in, in employing these pronouns in Hebrew uses only capital letters and has no lowercase letters. Uh, the translators had to face a difficult issue and thought about it long and hard. On the one hand was the practice of showing reverence for God in keeping with the common English usage. And on the other hand was their commitment to providing a precise rendering of the original with no bowing to what was not in the original text. In the end, they decided that fidelity to the original was their highest criterion. Um, and so when God is mentioned in the Bible, it's not uh, – if I, as often as, as people who don't capitalize God get attacked for trying to show disrespect, um, the Bible itself, for a very good reason, does not capitalize God. Uh, that's interesting, and, I, and um, I, I'm sure that Dan Barker said something uh, like that in the beginning of his book, uh, God, the Most Unpleasant Character in All of Fiction, um, talking about that it was, wasn't capitalized, say, for on the title of the book where – the, the, the beginning letter of every word is capitalized. Would it be? Um, Cat is Cat just sent me a, a little bit of history of the devil, the, the image that we think about. The familiar portrayal of the, of the red devil is comparatively recent, perhaps even modern, but the imagery used is based on the ancient Greco-Roman deity of Pan. Pan, the horned half-goat shepherd, was a god of nature, fertility, and goat herding in the classical world. But because of his bestial appearance and paganism, he was a long-standing target of the Christian church. So they just adopted that image to reference their, their own enemy. Well, if there's one thing that Christianity is good at, it's borrowing from pagan tradition. <laughs> I mean, it's kind it of a thing. Exceedingly <laughs> good at it. It's, yeah. <laughs> They do it more than anybody, I would say. It's just a regular Saturday night. <laughs> right, right. If you're not going to borrow from the pagans, what's the point? Um, there is, there is um, uh, no mention of um, birth control, probably because birth control didn't exist yet. Um, but hey, polling out existed for a long time. Right. I, there, there is, however, uh, some craziness that we're going to get to after the stuff that isn't in the Bible when we talk about the stuff that oh, is, man. that kind of touches on this a little bit. And for that reason, I'm going to move fairly quickly because this list is like 60 items long. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list these fairly quick, do like a rapid fire thing, jump in whenever you want to, um, and, and I'll try to keep an eye on the chat in case anybody uh, yeah, wants to, wants to jump in on the band. chat or Periscope. There is... Uh, let's see here. Uh, God does not call for us to be our brother's keeper. Cain simply asks it of God, am I my brother's keeper? Um, of course, it being an apple in the Garden of Eden, it just mentions fruit. Uh, but, you know, if you do a painting today, of course, Eve's going to be holding an actual apple. Um, I heard that it was likely a pomegranate because apples didn't exist in that part of the world at that time. Interesting. Uh, that would uh, that would of course rely on an understanding that gar the Garden of Eden is is a literal place, um, and I've I've heard both argued that the Garden of Eden like is actually a place that you you just can't get to you can't find it it's almost like it's hidden from view by supernatural power, uh, but it's somewhere maybe uh, in in anywhere from I've heard uh, I've heard. Well, um, well, I'm just I'm sorry that. But that makes sense because magic things can often be hidden from muggles' views. I've seen that in Harry <laughs> Potter. You can you can hide magic things and, and muggles can't even see it. So yeah, there's right. precedence for that. 
like a hologram, right? Um, yeah, for sure. I've I've heard that it's somewhere perhaps in Israel. I've heard that it is in Iraq, somewhere in the north of Iraq, uh, somewhere near the, the Tigris or Euphrates rivers. Um, I also remember learning somewhere, I think when I was a child, that the um, the, uh, the the borealis lights, uh, the northern lights that we get to see, is 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 actually explained because that is. Uh, light glinting off the sword of the angel that guards the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Oh, so then the gardens in, like, <clears throat> northern Alaska. Cozy. Who, who who knows where that comes from? I just <laughs> I remember being told that oh yeah, the northern lights. That's um, that's because there's an angel in front of the literal Garden of Eden. That makes um, sense. I bet you that's not in the Bible either. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure it is not. Uh, there is uh, no suggestion that clergy should perform marriages. Uh, no mention of the church celebrating Ash Wednesday. Um, the Bible says that those who have sex before marriage should indeed get married, and that once you join with someone in that way, there are permanent consequences. But a strict, specific prohibition against cohabitation before marriage is hard to find. Uh, there's, there's this guy writing this was, uh, was a youth pastor, and he said, we would, have, we would have really liked to have had that handy, but you can't point to the Bible and say, see, you can't shack up because it's not in there. Um, it, it's just that you're supposed to marry the person that you have sex with. But if you are living in sin, as they say, with the person that you eventually marry, the Bible doesn't have a problem with that. Um, let's see here. Um, it doesn't explain why or how we switched from uh, the Saturday, Saturday being the Sabbath to Sunday being the Sabbath. Uh, it doesn't say that Jesus was a carpenter. It's an inaccurate English translation of the original tecton, which is a builder or contractor, likely with stone. Um, any sense of communion, baptism uh, is not from the Bible. Um, now, this... I find these two words interesting because I associate them so much with Christianity. Jesus never said the word grace, and the word faith, as we understand it, was never mentioned in the Old Testament. That surprised me, yeah. Um, uh, well, I can see that it, faith wouldn't need to be in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, God was popping up here and there all over the place talking to everybody. And not a lot of people needed faith in the Old Testament. That's true. Uh, everybody who seems to talk about God talks about firsthand experiences with him. They're relaying, they're relaying an actual event that occurred to them. They're not saying you, you need to believe on faith. That doesn't come until God stops showing up. Right. Nothing in the Bible suggests, uh, specifically says that Jesus was single. Um, the fact that we live in heaven forever is not in the Bible. No matter what your end times view, we end up on a renewed earth at the end, according to Revelation. Heaven is at best a way station in the Bible to our ultimate destiny. We talked about this a little bit in our Heaven and Hell episode. That's why um, I was just going to say that. We did mention that. We were, uh, I, was, I remember being a little confused on that. What, are we in heaven? Are we on earth? Is it the same earth, but it's cleansed of the bad people? Is it a brand new earth? Is the new earth on top of the old earth? Right. The, the city shows up from heaven, but we all live on a new earth, not in heaven. And, and if we do go to heaven, it's not permanently. Um, there is no prohibition of gambling in the Bible. Um, the, there is no overwhelming proof that Jesus was poor. Most evidence suggests the opposite. 
Um, no mention of Mary remaining a virgin after Jesus's birth. Of course, they talk about Jesus's brother. Um, so presumably she wasn't a virgin. She was only a virgin for Jesus's birth, not for his siblings' birth. There, uh, there's no direct link of Mary Magdalene being a prostitute. This is this is often told to me that 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 she was uh, a prostitute. Uh, it doesn't say that she was a prostitute or a woman of ill repute. Um, it doesn't mention being possessed by an evil spirit. There's the uh, there's the, the the flock of pigs. There's the uh, uh, there's some there's some there's some ideas that that turn into Legion, exorcism. We are many. Right. There are some ideas of there being unclean spirits, but a person has an unclean spirit. They don't have us. Right. So most modern, according to this person, most modern translations, which use the word possessed were published after the movie, The Exorcist. You can have an unclean spirit in you, but it doesn't like run you like a puppet, according to uh, according to the Bible. That's like modern Catholicism, I guess. Um, No specific mention of transgenderism. But it does say that men and women are forbidden from wearing those clothes. Um, let's see here. Uh, any, nobody, it never mentions people praying with their hands folded. Uh, it doesn't mention pews or pulpits. No, what um, I hear mostly here, about praying is uh, to pray with your head covered. Right. The Bible right. talks about covering your head when you pray, but not, not anything about what to do with your hands. And today there are a lot of people that bow their head. Um, but I was always explained to me as, well, he is, he is the king of kings, so we bow to him. Um, there's no blanket prohibition of drinking alcohol. There is no prohibition of conscious, consciousness-altering uh, uh, substances. Um, it, it, they talk about altering your consciousness through prayer. Um, this person says there's nothing wrong with altering your consciousness. You do it when you go to the movies. You do it when you read an imaginative book. Um, Paul wasn't even sure if he was in his body or not. Um, during during prophecy, and of course, John was in a serious altered state when he was seeing the vision in Revelation. Uh, there's no mention of church leaders wearing different clothing or of anybody dressing up for church. Um, oh, Ooh, that that strikes me as inaccurate. Well, I guess for people themselves going to church, because we talk about um, your Sunday finest, you know, and, and it, it kind of correlates with the cleanliness and next to God, and so wear your Sunday best. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about priests because there's a whole chapter about how uh, what kind of clothes the priest was going to wear. Yes, there is a, there is there is a lot of stuff there. Um, this is specifically from a Christian point of view, so okay. they're talking about the church like post Jesus, um, not about what what the priests, the rabbis were supposed to wear. Um, but you're right. Uh, I'm glad that you uh, that you caught that because yeah, that 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 absolutely is mentioned. Um, there are some rules about that. Um, it doesn't say that women can't wear pants. It doesn't say that women should work at home, according to this person who reads Proverbs 31 as suggesting that women um, can do all sorts of stuff and has only sort of been been skewed and changed uh, uh, with with certain sects of Christianity in more recent times in order to sort of help themselves in their desire to subjugate women. Um, uh, any command that baptism should has to be by submersion. Paul was baptized in a home which likely had no running water. Um, I like this because I'm a smoker. Of course, only people in the New World were smoking tobacco, a substance and behavior totally unknown to the writers of the Bible. And using your body as a temple to forbid smoking would also outlaw junk food if you wanted to be specific. 
The Bible does say, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you receive from God? You are not your own. That's 1 Corinthians 6.19. The word or explicit description of a holy trinity is not in the Bible. The word trinity is not in the Bible. Right. Um, Let's see here. The rapture is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Revelation. Nowhere does it mention that Jesus had long hair or a beard. Um, the phrase personal relationship with Jesus, which I am always hurt. Uh, I'm always being told Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. How do you know? There's a theme of that in the Bible based on some people's interpretations. It does not say that you should have a, a personal relationship with Jesus in those terms. Um, and one that I uh, added was that the Ten Commandments does not state thou shalt not kill, but rather thou shalt not murder. Um, there are some translations of Deuteronomy 5.17 that read thou shalt not kill while others say murder. depends on what Bible you're reading. The New, the new English Version, the, the New International Version, uh, King James, I'm not sure which ones say which, but there are plenty of translations that say thou shalt not murder. And there are some that say wow. thou shalt not kill, but none of them translate the, the, the Ten Commandments to say thou shalt not kill, but rather thou shalt not murder. And that seems fairly evident because they have uh, you know, Christianity throughout history has no problem with killing. Truly, right. Um, right. This is the exciting part, though. This, this is, is the part, part that this is the part that made me an atheist. <laughs> this is you um, know, um, uh, you know, Peter Bogosian has the book A Manual for Creating Atheists, uh-huh. and it's an excellent book. And I encourage everybody to read it. Um, but no offense to Peter Bogosian. I think the manual for creating atheists is the Bible. Mm. Read what is in the Bible. And if you're not an atheist, I don't think you're paying attention. I Truly. I mean, that, and that's kind of the point, isn't it? When you break all of this down, there's not – there's not a ton of harm in accidentally saying that there's stuff in the Bible that isn't there until you're doing it in a way that promotes bigotry or division or sectarianism or something like that, which does happen. Um, right. But, you know, thinking that, that cleanliness is next to godliness is in the Bible. Okay. Well, that's annoying because that's inaccurate. Um, but I don't know how much harm comes from that. Maybe some people are extra clean. Like I don't, but it's the, it's the stuff <laughs> that actually is in the Bible. And the lengths the actual... that the apologetics will go to to defend those things. Right. It's Guys, this is absolutely the fun part. If you stuck around through all of that, I appreciate it. I was a little worried that that might get slightly boring. Um, but the, the, the stuff that is actually there that just kind of makes you, makes you tilt your head is – it's just – it's magical. Um, I'll start with a really, really easy one, a really, a really nice one. This is in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. It says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Um, sound advice. Uh, I, would, I would concur. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. That's, yeah, good idea. That, 
that's an irrational thing to do. Uh, now I've had this explained to me as as Jesus here is referring to sacred things, meaning um, the 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 message of his testimony. Uh, so I, I, I've I've had this I've had this explained as it's a metaphor for when you're talking to someone who wants to criticize your faith or your book or your religion. Um, just stop. It's a waste of time. Don't bother having a discussion with an atheist or an anti-theist. Uh, because they just want to tear this apart, and they are the pigs in this analogy. So if you give them your pearls, meaning the Bible, meaning the beautiful message of Jesus, they will trample it, and then they will turn and tear you to pieces, which at first is a little insulting, and then strikes me as a warning of don't bother talking about the Bible with people that don't believe in the Bible, because they'll tear you to shreds. (laughs) You can't win the argument, so don't do it. (laughs) The swine... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, goddamn swine. Um, this one, and I was just looking up some things here in, in my Bible here. Uh, he that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Deuteronomy 23.1, the King James Version. Um, but there are other mentions of uh, for let's see Leviticus twenty one eighteen for who for whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish he shall not approach a blind a blind man or a lame or that hath a flat nose or anything superfluous or a man that is broken footed or broken handed or a crooked back or a dwarf or that hath blemish in the eye or be scurvy or scabbed or hath his stones broken. No man that hath a blemish of the of the seed of Aaron shall come nigh to the offerings of the Lord. So anybody with any kind of deformity or abnormality or a, a flat nose, just a funny looking nose, you can't come in and and give you know your your uh, your offering. But but to really narrow it down to all those very specific things, flat nose, broken nose, crooked nose, or or smashed testicles, or a, a deformed penis, or a penis has been cut off. You can't come in here. <laughs> it's just very, very strange, and also not fair <laughs> at all. Right. It's, it's arbitrary. Isn't the whole point here that what matters is in your heart? Aren't you going to be perfect when you get to heaven, or the new world, or city, or whatever it is? Isn't that not going to matter then? And it's just what's in your heart? I mean, I don't, I really, I struggle with this one so much. It's so weird that God is annoyed with your, with your blemishes that, you know, through no fault of your own, maybe something happened. Maybe you have a deformity. Maybe you're handicapped. Nope, not good enough. You are not, I, you can't access God. You know, aside from maybe a couple of uh, mentions of leprosy throughout the Bible, he doesn't really have a a problem with blemishes anywhere else, but the testicle part of it and the, the the privy member part of it, he's got a problem with that area all throughout the Bible. He's constantly yeah. talking about that. Oh yeah, yeah. God's got a serious preoccupation <laughs> with. So he wants with it to penises. look really good and appeasing and, and be all put together <laughs> well, but he doesn't want you to use it for anything. Right, right. Yeah, he likes a he likes a nice dung. Um, he wants he you to. Yeah, he, wants you, yeah, he wants you to do some manscaping. You know, <laughs> he doesn't want the one-eyed hunter in the bush. But uh, <laughs> beyond that, 
don't damage it too much. Oh, except for uh, circumcision. He doesn't mind if you mutilate it in that manner. You could still go well, ahead and of, circumcise it. That's the original manscaping. <laughs> Take a little off the top there, you know, make it look good. Yeah, God's uh, God's picky when it comes to the penis. That 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 passage, and I love I I put both versions in here, uh, the King James version because it's so British. He that is wounded in the stones, or hot is privy member pri- cut off, shall not enter the congregation. It's so good, the privy member. But uh, this was suggested to me by uh, uh, by a, a friend of ours, Heathiest. He sent uh, he sent this to us on Twitter. And um, uh, the New Living Translation is a little more explicit. It says, if a man's testicles are crushed or his penis is cut off, he may not be admitted to the assembly of the Lord. Um, that's just so much more, so much more uh, vulgar. Um, okay, we are, we are running out of time, as always. I wanted to, to hit this as best as I could, and I just put in like the whole it's it's like it's like 20 verses uh numbers 5 11 through 31 i took this from the king james version and i'm not just going to read it because it'll take too long um but this is weird uh i'll, I'll read i'll read bits as i need um the lord said spake unto uh, spake unto moses um speak unto the children of israel and say unto them if any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him and a man lie with her carnally and it be hid from the eyes of her husband and be kept close and she be defiled, and there is no witness against her, neither she be taken with the manner. And the spirit of jealousy come upon him, meaning the husband, and he becomes jealous of his wife, and she be defiled. Or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he is jealous of his wife, and she not be defiled. So it doesn't matter if she actually went and slept with, her hus- uh, with somebody other than her husband or not. Just if the guy doesn't gets a feeling he's he's jealous for whatever reason regardless of whether or not she actually did anything wrong if he has the spirit of jealousy upon him this is actionable then he should take his wife to the priest and shall bring her offering for her and it goes through to describe this offering of barley meal but don't put oil on it because it's actually an offering of jealousy not an actual offering Um, the priest shall bring her near, set her before the Lord, and the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and of the dust that is in the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take and put it in the water, okay? So he's taking holy water, and he's just getting, like, dust from the floor, and he puts it in the water, and then he puts the offering in the woman's hands, um, the jealousy offering from the husband. Uh, and the priest shall have in it his hand the bitter water that causeth the curse. Okay? Uh, the priest shall charge her by an oath and say unto the woman, If no man have lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside to uncleanliness, but uh, with another instead of thy husband, be thou free from this bitter water that causeth the curse. But if thou hast gone aside to another instead of thy husband, and if thou be defiled, and some man have lain with thee beside thine husband, Then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing, and the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people, when the Lord doth make thy thigh rot and thy belly to swell. So we have the honor system, essentially. He's going to take water and make it intentionally dirty and then give her an offering and then, like, yell at her and say, You need to tell me right now if you slept with anybody and, like, shame her into explaining it to him. And then she has to either admit it or deny it. And if she admits it, then she has to drink the water. This water causeth the curse, the curse shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly swell. 
and thy thigh to rot, and the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. So you gotta you gotta be grateful for your for your licking. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then he will make the woman drink the water that causes the curse, uh, and it will enter her and become bitter. But then it goes on to say that the water it, it's just like uh, it's just like Monty Python. Throw the witch. We'll see if the witch can. Yeah. can, can it's. <laughs> It's completely superstitious. He, he, he first – you bring her in just because the man is jealous. It could be a completely baseless claim. He's just feeling jealous. The spirit of jealousy has taken him. So he brings his wife to the priest. The priest yells at her a bit, makes her declare whether or not she's, she's slept around. If she has, then he has to force her to drink this dirty water, and then it will go inside of her. And if she's cheated, it'll like – it'll make her thigh rot and her stomach expand. Um, if the woman be not defiled but be clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive seed. But if she is not, then the woman shall be a curse among her people. The water will become bitter in her, and her belly will swell. So, I don't know yeah, if this if is just through it. Like, she didn't. Right. So this is the way that we that we decide whether or not she's actually done something. I don't know why we then ask her, because if she asks and says no, it doesn't say you still have to give her the water. It's if she admits it, then you give her the water and then you test to see if she's being truthful. So she might lie about having been faithful. She might have been faithful and lie that she actually had an affair. Trying you make to her drink water. That's just like a president trying to get out of drinking that nasty water. Yeah, yeah. It right. <laughs> It, it says explicitly that if she is pure, then the water will not turn bitter, and she will be able to have kids. She will still be able to have children. So is this potion like an abortion? Yeah, like black tea? or I mean, what are they doing? Yeah, they're making her drink dirty water, and if she has been unfaithful, it like – it swells her stomach. I mean, it like says it, that he's it, just getting it right off the floor, like dirt off the floor, but it, it also seems like it's a very specific potion that does a very specific thing. Right. It, it makes her belly swell, and uh, if, she's, if she's been unfaithful, it makes her belly swell. If, it, if, if she has been faithful, it does nothing, and she can have children. So it seems like this is a potion um, made of just dirt off the ground and holy water, and it will purge her of, of a pregnancy that isn't her own. This, this reads to me as, as straight abortion. Um, of course, you know, only, only, only if done with somebody who isn't your spouse. So I found that to be, to be really, really crazy. Now, I, we've, we've got some more, but we're down to 16 minutes. And I really, really want to hit this story. So... Scott, are you familiar at all with the story of Onan? Uh, I'm not. I have been fascinated with this story since I started to uh, study the Bible. This is, this is one of the craziest things I have ever read anywhere, but it's certainly in the running for one of the craziest stories in the Bible. Okay, so let me see here. Judah and Shua have three brothers, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Judah arranged a marriage for Er with a woman named Tamar, but Let's when Er was... 
That's my mistake. They have three sons. Oh, three sons. I'm sorry. Three sons. My okay. mistake. Uh, arranged for a marriage with Air with a woman named Tamar, but Air was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so God slew him. So Judah told Onan, the second oldest, to marry Air's wife and make kids and raise them as heirs. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, Ona has sex with Tamar, but he pulls out and ejaculates on the ground because he doesn't want to have a kid. God sees this and kills Onan too. Now, I told you that pulling out was old. I knew it was in the Bible. Mm. I told you that yeah, earlier. This is, this is Genesis chapter 38. You did. Um, he, he, it doesn't say why he killed Ur. Right. He it just it just kind of right at the beginning of this chapter mentions that after getting married, he was wicked, wicked in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, right. He did. So God kills him, just, you know, is intervening again and just kills him for being wicked. So as was tradition, um, the second oldest, Onan, goes and marries his his older brothers um, and is supposed to impregnate her. That's the way that the law worked. But he doesn't want to. So he, he still has sex with her, but at the last moment he pulls out and just, and just comes on the ground, um, which really pisses God off. And so he also <laughs> kills Onan. Okay. Now, that's like the very beginning of this story. Judah tells Tamar, the, the widow now twice, to go live with her father until his third oldest boy, Shayla, grows up and can be her third husband. She does, but eventually Shayla grows up and Judah doesn't summon her back to get married a third time. One day, after Judah's wife has died, he goes to shear his sheep. Tamar puts on a veil and goes to see Judah, who thinks, hey, great, a prostitute, fantastic, just what I want. He negotiates some sex in return for one of his sheep to be delivered later. She asks for collateral, and Judah gives her his staff and his jewelry, and then they bang. Right there on the trail. And Tamar gets pregnant. She goes home and puts back on her widow's clothes and waints. Judah gets home and sends his buddy to pay the harlot with a promised sheep. With the promised sheep, but the harlot is nowhere to be found. Three months later, Judah finds out that his daughter-in-law is pregnant by whoredom, to which he responds, bring her forth and let her be burnt. So he, he hasn't caught on yet that it's the same woman. He just found out that someone else is being a harlot. And even though he totally had sex with a harlot three months ago, he goes, oh, well, we can't let that stand, and says, bring her forward so that we can burn her. Complete double standard. He's got no problem sleeping with prostitutes. He just has a problem <laughs> with people being prostitutes. <laughs> oh, Christ. So when she arrives, she shows the jewelry and the staff to prove that it was Judah who had hired her as a prostitute. And Judah says, she has been more righteous than I because I didn't have my third son marry her and sends her away. The story ends with Tamar giving birth to twins. What the fuck is the point? What is the point? So, so whatever Ur did was so wicked he was that killed God for. killed him. Now, we don't, we don't – if this is like a story about like what not to do, 
We don't know. It would have been was. helpful if they had mentioned <laughs> what Ur's great sin was. They just don't tell us. He just was wicked, so he's dead. Um, Onan, I, it, it must be on par with pulling out of your wife and having an orgasm while not inside her, because that also gets you instant death. But pretending being a prostitute, accepting things <coughs> from people who aren't your spouse for sex. That's fine because it resulted in pregnancy. There's nothing wrong with going pretending to be a a prostitute so that you can secretly fool your father-in-law to impregnating you. That's 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 way better in God's eyes than pulling out of your actual spouse and not giving her your seed because she is not killed. In fact, she goes on to have these twins who continue on. Like she's she's practically blessed. I, and Judah doesn't ever say, "Oh my God, I can't believe that this happened to me." He just goes, "Ah, you got me." See, I I, <laughs> I, 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 I owed you another husband, and I didn't come through, so I deserve that. Yeah, that was okay. I deserve that one. And, Go and on. We'll We're both even. It's even. You don't have to be killed. I don't have to be killed. God smites not the whole killing thing. Off you go. This is a huge part of the Catholic Church's stance on contraception. Um, it has been viewed as the reason masturbation is a sin, as that also involves spilling seed without making a baby. Some Christians and Jews interpret the story to be a declaration of interrupted coitus as a sin. Others think Ur and Onan are representatives of two tribes of Jews, and the whole thing is an allegory, which is historically a minority interpretation, but is the only one, vulgar and bizarre though it may be, that makes any kind of sense. It's the only is, way is that this, this where works. The, uh, don't spill your seed on the ground comes from, or is that another? I'm pretty sure that's from this. Okay. This is this is like what the church says is well, this is why we don't use contraceptive because uh, he was that that seed had a mission and. Onan got in the way of the divine plan by, by not coming in her and instead coming on the ground. Of course, then her twins wouldn't have been born because she got the twins from Judah by fooling him years and right. years. Um, I just real quick, and I, there, you know how you said, like, there's so many things that we're not going to get to. So that's why you wanted to get to that. And, you know, there's slavery of Exodus 21 and you can argue it's indentured servitude and what's worse or what's better. And, Slavery is mentioned elsewhere. There's, you know, the Leviticus man shouldn't lie with a man and, you know, all, all of these things that we haven't got to. But there's just one in particular. I know it's not as important as those, but it just goes to show that any kind of validity that you can put into this book at all. And it's, it's Exodus 7, 10 through 13, where Moses and Aaron are able to, with the help of God, um, use their their stabs, their walking stabs, their sticks, and, and, and God tells them, throw them down in front of the Pharaoh, and they'll become snakes. And then he'll see, like, the power of the Lord. And then, and then they do that. They throw down their stabs, and God turns those stabs into serpents. Um, right. But then the Pharaoh calls in his sorcerers and wizards, and, and they take every guy's staff in the room and turn them into snakes. Right. And he's like, see, my wizards can do that too without your god. And then I think Aaron's snake eats up all the other snakes because all of this is so believable. But right, you know, say what you will about God and His abilities to do whatever. Okay, He's all powerful. He can He can do it all. He can turn sticks into snakes. Why are there sorcerers and wizards 
who are able to do the same thing. Can do it. God can where, do. where do they exist now? God keeps doing weird stuff in the Bible. Um, there's, 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 um, oh, there's the, there's the priest who gets mocked, so he curses kids and has bears come out yeah. of the woods and eat them. And kill 42 children because um, he, they, they, they mocked him for being bald. That's God tells Ezekiel. Right. It, it, they're children. Uh, God tells Ezekiel. Children. He insists that um, um, Ezekiel needs to lay on his left side for 390 days and then lay on his right side for 40 days. During this time, he is only allowed to eat bread, which is baked over the fire of human shit. Now, Ezekiel protests at that, and so God lets him do it over cow shit instead. Uh, you've got uh, Abram pretending <laughs> that his wife is his sister. Yeah. Uh, Abram pretends his wife is his sister in order to swindle a bunch of Egyptians into giving him some stuff because of how pretty she is. Uh, right. God decides to kill over Moses, and, over and then he does that several times. Yeah, it's like he's he's just doing this stuff. Um, I mean, on and on. There, there, there's, there's, there's a there's a guy that actually wrestles with God uh, overnight. Uh, Jacob uh, wrestles with a man all night long, and then it turns out after they've been fighting, and this guy doesn't get beaten, he finally in the morning says, "I'll stop fighting you if you bless me." And so he blesses him and says, oh, hey, by the way, this whole time I've been God. <laughs> it's weird. Okay. I've got, to, uh, I've got to get through the outro. We've got six minutes. I hope I don't, uh, I don't, I hope I don't overshoot it. People will list many reasons for believing in the Bible as literal truth. It is the only possible source for objective morality or faith informs them that it is historically accurate or they feel commanded to believe in it. Uh, as supremely correct in all its claims. More progressive Christians insist that when read correctly, it all makes sense, rejecting centuries of interpretation and reinterpretation, often conflicting as new cultures get their hands on the text and allow new ideas to inform their reading. For today's Christians, there is plenty of literal truth and plenty of allegory, analogy, and poetry that lies somewhere on the spectrum that separates fact from fiction. The Bible is meant to be one part history book, one part spiritual guide, one part moral authority, and one part prophetic chronicle. I have yet to find a consistent metric that defines where these distinctions are to be determined. It seems that aside from the most important stories to the faith, apologists of various colors are able to interpret what they like. The Bible has been used by sincere readers to both justify and condemn everything from slavery to, one, to cutting one's hair. One nation takes it as a mandate to conquer their neighbors. Another sees it as requiring pacifism. Plainly, it hardly matters what the Bible says when it comes to how human beings will employ it, or any so-called holy text for that matter. As we mentioned last week, religion is typically more of a highlighter than a pen. Rather than truly informing the ethics and ideologies of its congregation, it supports and amplifies the traits already present. Societal values are reinforced, cruelty is defended, compassion is given divine warrant. Rather than defend or criticize subjective truth or morality on their own merits, religion is perpetually called upon as the source for the realities of the world and as the only metric by which we should judge them. How often have indefensible behavior been given a free pass by otherwise thinking people because some, some passage or other has been played as a trump card by the perpetrators? How often have good people surrendered credit for being decent by saying their goodness is only possible with the grace of God? What strikes me when reading the Bible is just how, overwhelming superst how overwhelmingly superstitious it is. This is not surprising. It was written by a superstitious people in a superstitious time. It is, however, remarkable just how often superstition is interpreted and recorded as divine intervention. The very heart of confirmation bias is written out on nearly every page. We are fortunate enough to live in a time of knowledge. Superstition is prevalent in nearly every culture in one way or another, including the United States, but rarely do these superstitions survive the disinfecting power of science and education. 
Today, we do not choose our mates based on astrological signs. We do not make decisions about our politics based on the ramblings of ancient societies from the Middle East. And we do not try to determine if we are suffering God's wrath based on the weather. At least that is what I should be able to write. A cursory glance at social media or dating personals reveals that some people do still invoke constellations and planetary positions when determining who they'd like to date. All too often, our politicians borrow the rudimentary ethics of an era past to help design legislation, even in a great secular nation like our own. And examples of evangelical leaders blaming hurricanes, earthquakes, and terrorist attacks not on our still-cooling planet or on fundamentalist madmen, but on the sinful nature of the victims— Hurricane Katrina, the devastating earthquake in Haiti, and 9-11 were all explained away in this disgusting and preposterous fashion by famous Christians, lending credibility to superstitious attitudes in the 21st century. Why would anyone with access to this book find it to be a consistent and enlightened text? Why do we still live in a world where the largest global religions hold up this pre-knowledge tome as reliable in any sense? Its pages are littered with examples of people who were deeply confused about the nature of their surroundings, continually amazed by the simplest coincidences and completely unaware and completely aware that others would share in their awe. Occasionally, these people reach too far and attempt to narrate impossible miracles, plenty of which are dismissed empirically. This is a massive clue that the Bible is a poor choice to find modern knowledge and should be excused from the public discussion. Instead, its impossibilities are held up by the superstitious as proof of God's power. These tales would not be acceptable from any other source. Christians reject the miracles of the Quran, dismiss the legends of Zeus, and rightfully raise a skeptical eyebrow at plenty of more believable claims with more recent authors. But this particular book, with all its weirdness intact, is defended with a straight face. This is swallowed as perfectly legitimate. We live in an era when, with a specialized education, a person can hold a reasonably comprehensive understanding of the human genome, the anatomy of the brain, and the motion of planets billions of miles away. Simultaneously, these same people may read about uh, the Great Flood and the Talking Donkey and the Big Fish and defend it against any critique of its veracity. This is a contradiction that our species must be willing to point out on sight. The Bible may be valuable from a literary standpoint, even interesting from a spiritual one, but it cannot be taken as literally true. We live in an era when superstition has been rejected and put to rest as part of our species' youth. I implore you, leave it where it belongs. Raise your standard for truth. Face the future. Value yourself and your inquisitive nature. And as we are so fond of saying, never stop thinking. Thank you, everybody, for being here tonight. That was a lot of fun. As always, we wish we had more time. We want you to follow us on Twitter, ISMPodcast underscore there and also on Periscope. I am Dopinephrine. He is El Duterino. Give us both a follow and a shout. If you want to talk about the age of the earth or thermodynamics, please talk with Scott at El Duterino on Twitter. He may be doing a scope in the near future to discuss those things. The show is not free for us to produce. It takes a lot of work and research. We very much appreciate all of our patrons, and we encourage you to consider becoming one yourself at patreon.com slash informed podcast. You can catch us on iTunes. You can get us on blog talk radio slash informed podcast. We will see everybody next Wednesday for another big episode. Thanks again.